If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all of those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, get great deals on courses right now. 25 People Who Changed America is out for pre order. You get it for the best price right now. It will never be this good again. Nor will any of the other classes at McClanahan Academy be this cheap again because prices are going up in April. And I've got a 25% coupon, so you're not going to get them for this price again. So if you want to snag some McClanahan Academy stuff, some classes, I've got 20 classes there. You want to get them now because you're going to miss out on this low price. So prices go up in April. You're going to get those coupons by being an email subscriber, whether you're at brianmcclanahan.com or mcclanahanacademy.com. Either one. I do send out the coupons to both eventually. So they're both getting them now. So you want the coupons. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Through a few pennies my way, you can click on the shop, uh, the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can also uh, send me those show requests. It's a great thing. And rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it by sharing around on social media. It's a great way to support the show. All kinds of ways to help me out here and get more listeners to the show. And I do appreciate all of it. Let's talk about uh, Joe Biden one more time this week, but I'm going to do it in a different way. You see, on Monday, uh, there was a comparison made between Joe Biden and Franklin Roosevelt. And um, in some ways, that's accurate. Look, they're both big government guys. And Biden said, well, you know, I'm kind of like Franklin Roosevelt coming in after Calvin Coolidge and uh, and Herbert Hoover, a government... Wasn't the government was the problem? Then government wasn't the problem. That's from Reagan to me. This is what this is what Biden said. But what we have in the White House today is an internationalist. We have someone that uh, is certainly bent on getting the United States involved in a great big war. Now Biden is supposedly pulling back. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. But I'm not so certain he really believes that. What was the comment at the end of his speech? Go get him, right? What was that? Well, that was a call to war by the United States. Go get who? Go get Putin, I'm sure, is who he was talking about. And everything now is Putin. Everything is about Putin, which, of course, is just absolutely ridiculous. Inflation is about Putin. No, it's not. Inflation was there before anything happened in Ukraine. And what was the real issue? You see, for four years, we didn't have any conflict in Ukraine. We had conflict in Ukraine when Obama was in office. We have conflict in Ukraine when the vice president... Joe Biden becomes president. Four years, we didn't have that problem. Why? Because Trump was pulling back on NATO. And Putin made it clear. They made it clear in their demands. What were the, what were the things they wanted out of the demands? They say, we'll stop fighting if these things happen. Well, one of them was, hey, 
don't put NATO in Ukraine. This is what they've been saying forever. Don't make, don't let NATO, don't let Ukraine join NATO. NATO is a Cold War relic that's irrelevant in the modern era. Irrelevant. In so many ways, the Russians and the United States should have common cause. Look, the Russians don't like domestic terrorism. They, they've suffered through it as well. And uh, the, the problem is the United States doesn't see Russia as an ally in that. I mean, you've got the Syrian situation, but we know that's kind of crazy. And what's really happening there? Can we trust anything? Is the United States really involved in stopping uh, all the bad guys in Syria? Or are we on the side of the bad guys in Syria? That's the question. And all the hypocrites that are out there on the United States side and foreign policies, you know, wringing their hands at things that Putin is doing, they all have blood on their hands from what happened during the American empire. The Clintons, the Bushes, all these people. All these people do. The Obamas. And of course, the only people that point out the hypocrisy typically are uh, those that are principled on the left who are anti-war, which I can't find many of those people anymore. And the libertarians who was saying, you know, well, I mean, this is awful. And then some on the old right as well. Those are the only people that are principled old, that are principled anti-war in a way that would be pushing to keep the United States out of war. The other thing that, of course, the the uh, Russians want was the separatist regions of Ukraine that were trying to get out of Ukraine when we had the installation of a puppet regime for the United States. They wanted out. They wanted to be part of Russia. Now, this is a very rich area in natural resources, so the Ukrainians didn't want to let that happen. But you look at what's happening there. The, the appeals the Ukrainians are making, well, you're not going to leave us hanging out here. You're not going to leave us like this. It's victim mentality. Like, they didn't cause any of these things. There was nothing going. Ukraine was just peacefully sitting around, and uh, they weren't doing anything. They were just... Now, certainly, Ukraine breaking away from the Soviet Union was something we should all celebrate. And Putin's actions to, to attack Ukraine should not be celebrated either. Okay. And when you look at it, and I had a listener, this is a listener-generated episode in many ways. The listener was 100% right. When you look at what Putin is doing in Ukraine, by attacking the rest of Ukraine, it's what Sherman was doing to the South. So all these people that are out there saying, well, Sherman was justified in the South. Total war is necessary. Uh, we got to go out and clean people out. Well, that's exactly what Putin is doing right now. So it's funny how all these people, I mean, the mental gymnastics people have to do to somehow say that the war in the South was was okay, but it's not okay for Putin. It's just hilarious. Now I know what they're going to say. Well, that was a war to stamp out oligarchy and to save to save the Union, and not just that to end slavery. And of course, there's no comparison here because Putin would be enslaving these people. Putin is doing bad things. You can't compare the two. You can. They're 100% comparable because what you have is a breakaway state that the Russians are saying is theirs, and they're going to take it back. And they're, I mean, apparently they have their sights set on some of the other separatist regions that broke away from the Soviet Union in the 1990s. But all of that said, I mean, look, you want to stop the war? Don't allow Ukraine to join NATO and give the separatist areas to Russia. And I think that, I mean, they've said it, we'd stop the war. Now, you could say, well, McClanahan, you're naive. The Russians aren't going to stop there. They're going to try to take everything. For four years, there was no war because, hey, the Trump administration was not interested in putting NATO in Ukraine. It's amazing how that works. Who's really the dope? Is it Joe Biden? Who's really the aggressive jerk? Is it Joe Biden or Donald Trump in this way? 
There's actually a video which I found funny uh, where, where Trump is shaking hands with Putin, and he does it in a way that's very aggressive. He actually grabs Putin's hand and pulls him in, which shows dominance. And Putin jerked right in. He just laughed. I mean, Trump, people, all the people that think that Trump was Putin's puppet, who's really Putin's puppet? It's Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden. Putin didn't do anything for four years. Now he makes a move when Biden's in office. Why? Because you've got the internationalists. I mean, Joe Biden said, I'm building, these, I'm building NATO. I'm doing these things. He's building a Cold War relic of the world that's a disaster. And you know who said these same things? This is something that uh, this, this uh, listener also brought up. Was a man named John Flynn. And I'm going to talk about John Flynn for a couple of minutes from an article from 2008 on Lou Rockwell. I love John Flynn. Uh, he was part of the basis of the chapter that I wrote on Franklin Roosevelt in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. So John Flynn is great. But to give you an idea of, of how bad the right is, quote-unquote, on Russia and how they're a, disa- they're a danger. Listen to Mark Levin. This was just a couple of weeks ago. Mark Levin, quote, I mean, Biden is a so-called commander-in-chief. He's a disgrace and disaster. He actually has the Russians negotiating with the Iranians on a nuclear deal with us. What kind of fool does that? I will never know. He puts more sanctions on the American oil industry and no sanctions on the Russian oil industry as I speak. Well, of course, we know that that's happened now since this. What kind of a fool does that when we can use oil to to, uh, debilitate the Russian economy, the Putin economy, and war machine rather than debilitate you, Mr. and Mrs. America? We do have a damn fool in the White House, there's no question about that, and we should be muscling up our military for any possibilities, and we're not. Despite spending trillions and trillions of massive debt, we're not muscling up the United States military. Russia, China, Iran, the axis of evil, the real axis of evil, that now exists. Why does this matter? Because, ladies and gentlemen, I personally am sick and tired of hearing the excuses for Putin and the attacks on the United States, that we somehow are going to escalate something. We have been incredibly passive in the face of what Putin is doing. Diplomacy? Think what he has said here. We've been incredibly passive. He wants boots on the ground. He doesn't want diplomacy. He's saying, of course, the Secretary of State's pathetic. The National Security Advisor is pathetic. He says, we never had such a pathetic team in modern American history up against true, vile, genocidal maniacs. Xi, the regime in Tehran, and yes, the fascist Putin, who's busy running around calling the Jewish leader, the president of Ukraine, a Nazi. Think about that. Well, see, there are fascists in Ukraine, that the media was talking about just a few years ago. That the United States is propped up. I mean, Putin's not incorrect about this. Is Zelensky a fascist? No. But um, it's not... Putin's not 100% incorrect about fascists being in Ukraine. Now, I say all that because... This is the internationalist. This is, this is Biden, the internationalist, getting us involved in problems. And, of course, a man who pointed this out years ago was John Flynn. So this is a little piece from LewRockwell.com from March 1, 2008. It says, John T. Flynn, a journalist, author, and master polemicist of the old right, is highly unusual. He started out as a liberal communist for that flagship of American liberalism, the New Republic, and wound up on the right denouncing creeping socialism. That's actually not that unusual. You find this with a lot of people. They started on the left and became people on the right. Now, you could say you could see this with neocons too because they started on the left and, be, and moved to the right. But there are also people on the old right 
that were on the left and moved to the right, but didn't hang on to the to the dogma of the left. That's the issue, right? So Flynn starts on the left. I mean, look, Richard Weaver started on the left and moved to the right. It's not unusual. I think uh, Raimondo, who wrote this, Justin Raimondo, uh, was wrong about that. It's not unusual. What is unusual about Flynn is that instead of being seduced by the New Deal and the popular front supporting the war, Flynn was led by his thoroughgoing anti-war stance to challenge the developing state worship of modern liberalism. So that's where he's unusual. He's saying, well, that's where he's unusual, not that he went from the left to the right, but this. And again, you can still find people that move from the left to the right that also had the same positions. Essentially, the old right has always been anti-war. That's the thing people miss about the old right. The real old right is anti-war. It's anti-internationalism. It's America first. It's non-interventionism. It doesn't mean that we can't have trade and other things, which of course are essential. But you're not going to go sticking your nose in everybody else's business. You're not going to go sticking your nose in Ukraine. Or in NATO. Or forming idiotic alliances. That are have outlived their usefulness. NATO is was created... In the 1940s, because we had the Soviet Union. Now, Putin's not trying to put the Soviet Union back together. I don't believe. Um, I know there was other... Well, he's, he's definitely doing that. I don't believe he is. Um, he's, not a, he's not a Christian Orthodox. He's an he's a atheist, I think. But um, the Russian people now have really moved in the direction of Orthodoxy and since the Soviet Union fell. They're building churches like crazy over there. But Putin also recognizes the conservative culture of Russia, that, that's, that religion that was always there but was suppressed by the Soviet regime. He allowed that to flourish. And so this is why Russia, I mean, Russia is culturally conservative in a lot of ways. They even were during the Cold War. And I've mentioned this before. I had a student for years from Romania, years ago from Romania. And um, she lived there in the 1980s when, this, when the communists were in control of Romania. And it was very conservative, she said, very you know, very traditional, very conservative. When uh, when the communists uh, abdicated and the and the and the communist government fell, um, she said the only we were all looking for the United States. The only thing we got out of it was disco music and uh, and uh, cowboy movies and drugs, and it destroyed the conservative culture of Romania. And if you go back and look at this kitchen debate between Richard Nixon. And Khrushchev, when Nixon was vice president, they go to a Sears and they look at the modern kitchen. And Nixon says, hey, see this here, this modern kitchen. Uh, this, this frees our women up from having to stand in the kitchen so much and they can go do things. And Khrushchev says, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? So very conservative culture in Russia, even during the height of the Soviet Union. And that's what Putin is against. He's against the influence of the West and all the liberalism of the West. And you can sit there and think, yeah, I mean, some of that stuff we don't like either, right? I mean, it's, it's bad stuff. You can understand how uh, Putin and the Russians, the conservative Russians, would be against these kind of things. And look, Zelensky is, is a leftist, hardcore leftist on many social issues. John T. Flynn was born in 1882 in Bladensburg, Maryland, where he grew up in a devoutly Roman Catholic family. He studied law at Georgetown University, but soon switched to journalism. After a long struggle, he finally found a position in 1920 with the New York Globe, where he specialized in financial analysis. He wrote a series of books 
Grafton Business, Men of Wealth, and a very fair biography of John D. Rockefeller entitled God's Gold. When Roosevelt was swept into office, Flynn welcomed him, sharing the hope that the new president would get the country moving again. Flynn supported the Democratic Party platform of 1932, which called for an end of the extravagant spending of the Republicans, a balanced budget, and the abolition of the many government bureaus and commissions. Now, again, that's an important point. Roosevelt in 1932, and this is something that Ryan Walters, who wrote a great book on Warren Harding, I reviewed here, uh, was arguing back and forth with the moron who uh, was the former, uh, uh, I guess, chairman of the Roosevelt Library. That, uh, you know, somehow uh, that's incorrect. This is true. The Democrat Party platform of 1932 was very conservative. They actually blamed the Republican for too much spending, too much taxes. And they were going to roll all this stuff back. But what they didn't know is that Roosevelt actually believed all of it. What most people don't realize is that Herbert Hoover was actually the architect of the New Deal, not Franklin Roosevelt. And that the Republican Party was dangerous in the Hoover administration. That Roosevelt promised to undo all that stuff and do something different and went in and put Hoover's plans on steroids. But Flynn was soon disillusioned. In fact, the New Deal that Roosevelt sold to the American people in 1932 bore absolutely no resemblance to the one he immediately imposed on an unsuspecting nation. During the first 100 days of his administration, Roosevelt racked up a deficit larger than the one it took Hoover two years to produce. Worse, from Flynn's viewpoint, was the blizzard of new government agencies the president created, agencies that sought to regulate every aspect of economic life and the billions in borrowed money that financed them. Flynn actually talks about a story where the Congress passed a rolled-up newspaper. They didn't have the bill yet. They just got a rolled-up newspaper and said, well, this is what the bill is going to be. Here you go, pass it. There was not any text on it. You know, you can't read the bill because there's no bill to read. Just like nowadays, nobody can read these bills. They're too big. I mean, they're mountains of paper. Nobody can read all that stuff. It's ridiculous. He used his column in the New Republic to attack the president and in 1940 came out with a short book, Country Squire in the White House, in which he excoriated Roosevelt for betraying the trust of the people who had elected him. Flynn was particularly horrified by the National Recovery Administration, sometimes called the National Industrial Recovery Administration, which he denounced as one of the most amazing spectacles of our times that represented probably the gravest attack upon the whole principle of the democratic society in our political history. But that's not what you hear about Roosevelt if you get the mainstream discussion of it. No, no, no. Roosevelt saved America. Roosevelt saved democracy. Heather Cox Richardson, you're a Roosevelt. That's great. No, it's not. It's a disaster. Roosevelt was a disaster. The prices, wages, hours, and production quotas set by trade associations and an industry-wide code set up to regulate every aspect of commerce. Competition would be eliminated and business would ensure for itself a secure and profitable niche in the new corporatist order. Anytime you see that there is an agreement by business with some government, a threat of a lawsuit or something else, you know it's going to be bad for small business. I'll give you an example. I worked for years in the tobacco industry, and there was something called the Master Settlement Agreement, which was made in the, in the, at the end of all the lawsuits that came out of lung cancer and lung disease and all the things that smoking causes. Well, the big tobacco companies, Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds and Brown and Williamson and Lorillard, these are the big ones, the big cigarette companies cut this deal to where it basically made it to where new cigarette companies would never have the market share that these older companies would have, no matter what. And they would never have the market share because they couldn't advertise anymore. 
They couldn't, they couldn't uh, do anything that they used to do. No billboards, a point of sale advertising was okay. But then these companies would come in and tell the, the uh, you know, convenience stores, hey, look, we'll give you X amount of dollars to have the top 50% of your cigarette rack because that's the only thing people ever saw. Everything else is underneath that. So you're, they're paying, they're buying in shelf space, and that's all that you're going to see. So Marlboro will always be the number one cigarette in America. It will never lose that market share. Uh, Newport, what's interesting, Newport was always the number two cigarette. It's a menthol cigarette. And of course, now those menthol cigarettes are seen as racist, right? So uh, that's a whole other situation. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But you know, for years, it was uh, Lucky Strike was number one. Then it was Winston. Then it was, then it was Marlboro. But Marlboro will never lose its market share because of the Master Settlement Agreement. Just like when you look at these regulatory agencies created during the Teddy Roosevelt administration and then later on in the other progressive administrations, the idea was to ensure that big business would would control market share and the small guys would get run out of business because they couldn't afford the regulations or anything. This is the point, right? So be, be, be very wary of these kind of things. With wages, pri- okay, I said that. Um, this was all couched in the language of liberalism, Flynn said, but it was championed primarily by the Chamber of Commerce and other business groups. Flynn saw himself as the defender of true liberalism, which had been betrayed by that man in the White House. Flynn predicted that Roosevelt's spending on vast domestic programs could not continue, for he'd run out of useful peacetime projects. The Supreme Court may have declared the NRA unconstitutional, but there were other ways to militarize the economy, such as actually going to war. Roosevelt would pursue military adventure abroad to take the people's minds off their troubles at home, troubles that were not getting any better and that the New Deal was only making worse. He detailed His detailed chronicle of the misdeeds of the New Deal remains the definitive account, the Roosevelt myth, which appeared in 1948. It turns the conventional wisdom on its head with facts and powerful analysis. In it, it is an excellent uh, source book for anyone looking to do work in this area of history. He covers FDR's rise to power, his seizure of the economy and the nation's money, and the, his regimentation of national, li- national life that forestalled economic recovery and led to war. I agree. It's a fantastic book, and you got to get it. Flynn's final definitive shift from the left to the right was completed with the writing of his greatest work, As We Go Marching. In this book, Flynn stepped back and tried to see the trends he had been fighting, militarism, centralism, leader worship, as the interlocking components of a system. I also recommend uh, Charles Tansel's Backdoor to War, which is really good too. It, it blasts Roosevelt. It's so good. The growth of a huge bureaucratic apparatus, the partnership of government and business, social welfare schemes, huge public debts, and the need to resolve p- economic pr- uh, problems by creating a permanent war economy. All these phenomena had become dominant first in Italy, then in Germany, then in the United States under the New Deal. There's also a great book by a guy named Schibblebush, where he's, it's three New Deals. Gets into this whole thing, too. How you had a New Deal in Italy, you had a New Deal in Germany, and then you had a New Deal in the United States, and all these people were similar. Mussolini, Hitler, and Roosevelt. But yet, that's not what it's seen as. It's, you can't say Roosevelt was advocating types of fascist policies, but he was. Right? He was. He wasn't a fascist, but he was certainly advocating some fascist-type policies. The theme of the book is that while the United States was fighting fascism in Europe, the seeds of that doctrine had already been planted at home. The war itself would accelerate their growth. Throughout the 1950s, Flynn sounded the alarm about the growing scope of U.S. intervention in Indochina. It was, he thought, only a matter of time before the United States may have to make a decision as to whether or not we will get into another Asiatic war. Probably in Vietnam, he said on January 15, 1952. 
To be put in the position of defending French imperialism from the communist-led Vietnam would be an unmitigated disaster for the United States, and he was, of course, right about that. Flynn ended his public career in 1960 at the age of 79. His health was failing, and he retired from journalism. He died in 1964 as William F. Buckley and his followers were eradicating the last remnants of the old right, his work largely forgotten. That he died isolated from the right as well as the left, his books neglected, his legacy largely unknown, is due to the fact that the history of any conflict, both military and ideological, is written by the victors. Flynn's essential insight that the threat to America is not to be found in any foreign capital but in Washington, D.C., takes on new immediacy today. His analysis on the structure of the welfare warfare state as a system based on centralized government control of the economy and a permanent war economy is vital to understanding how we, where we are today, how we got here, and how we can get out. Again, perpetual state of war. Last thing I remember, and I've said this before, I had a political science professor as an undergraduate who said this, and as a young dummy, uh, I said, oh, no, no, that's not true. We're not in a perpetual state of war. He was saying it because of the military-industrial complex, but what he didn't realize, this guy was, was only getting half the story right. We are having a wartime economy, wartime footing, in the economy as well, because all the things that we had in World War II were just transferred to something else, and that's something that Flynn does a beautiful job pointing out. I've got a, a great chapter on Roosevelt Nine Presidents who screwed up America, and it's based a lot on, Flynn, on uh, John Flynn's work. So you want to get that. But anyways, uh, I thank the the person that sent this in because it is a very good discussion of Roosevelt and where we are in foreign policy. Uh, we need a distraction. Inflation's high. Who can we blame it on? Well, blame it on Putin. The Democrats have been a disaster all throughout the 20th century for getting the United States involved in wars. Wilson, Roosevelt, Truman, Johnson, Biden, Obama. Uh, and then you look at George W. Bush, who was just a Wilsonian progressive masquerading as something else. But that's exactly what he was. So we've the Democrats have been worse for the United States in terms of the military than any other party. And I think that's clear from the record. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.